actually graduated from the teacher training program, and I still haven't gotten used to having someone read my bio while I'm sitting here. There's just some strange awkwardness to that for me. <clears throat> but fortunately, I know how to observe my mind, so it's not a problem. <laughs> so, good evening again. Uh, I'm happy to be here. There's um, something special about coming to CIMC. Um, I think this is the, the oldest community meditation center in North America in this tradition, in the insight tradition. So um, I just I have a deep appreciation for this community and uh, for the amazing uh, resource that this, this center is for everyone who lives here. Uh, so uh, it's a real honor to get to spend the time with you. And I, I can feel it when I come in here and just sit with you that uh, people here practice. You know, this is a practicing sangha. And uh, that's, that's powerful. So just deep bows to you. <clears throat> so I, um, I wanted to talk tonight about um, uh, some, some ways to get the most out of our meditation practice. And that's uh, a little bit of an odd turn of phrase if meditation's about letting go, right? Well, what do we, you know, get the most out of it? What does that mean? Well, we, we meditate for a reason, <laughs> right? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those paradoxes. But, uh, but if we're not meditating properly, then uh, our intentions aren't going to bear fruit. <clears throat> one of the things that I love about this path is that there are many, many ways to practice. Um, I just uh, came back from teaching a five-day retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. Uh, it was a metta retreat, so you're practicing loving-kindness, um, which is one form of practice, one technique. So there are many meditation techniques we can use. Um, but then there are many forms of cultivation on the path um, from practicing generosity, uh, cultivating wise friendship. The Buddha um, talked at length about the importance of having Kalyanamita, wise friends, on the path. And he said, I don't know of any other single thing outside one's own mind other than wise friendship that is more powerful for um, bringing about and uh, strengthening the Eightfold Path than having good spiritual friends on the path. Uh, so friendship is an is a important part and a, a way to cultivate the, the path, uh, keeping precepts, uh, devotional practices, chanting ritual, reflection and recollection, using thought and the mind. So all of these are different ways of practicing and cultivating the path. Um, and yet it's the meditation techniques that we, um, particularly here in the West, have really focused on, and, and for good reason. They're, they're very powerful, very, very powerful techniques uh, and kind of a technology, an inner technology for understanding and transforming the mind. But we need to know how to use them properly. 
We need to know how to hold them and how to handle them. Uh, you can do a lot of good with a certain tool, and if you don't know how to use it, you can do a lot of harm with the very same tool. You know, whether you're a, whether you're a physician or an artist or a cook or a carpenter, if you don't know how to handle that tool, you can hurt yourself and you can destroy the thing you're working on. And it's the same with meditation, actually. You know, we can get really bent out of shape um, if, we, if we don't know how to meditate properly. And just because we understand a technique doesn't mean that we're using it properly. Um, so um, this, this list of five, five things that I want to share with you, it's not out of the texts or anything. It's just from my own practice, uh, kind of a way of bringing together some of the things that I've learned from my own teachers and uh, uh, things I've understood from my own practice. And so um, I'll tell you what they are, and then I'll talk about each one. So the first is uh, shifting gears, understanding how to transition and shift gears before doing formal meditation exercises and practice. The second is relaxing one's expectations. The third is aligning the body, then aligning the mind, and then appreciating awareness. So these are the five, five ways that um, I use in my own practice. Uh, whatever technique I'm using, whether I'm chanting, um, practicing vipassana or metta, or doing um, uh, samatha practice, calming practice, concentration practice, uh, reflection, recollection, uh, the whole kind of array of meditative techniques. So here we go. So uh, shifting gears. So when we, when we do any kind of activity in life, usually there's some kind of preparation for it. So, for example, if you're going to go work out, what do you do? You, you put on sweats, right? You don't work out in your professional work clothes. It's on not comfortable. They cost more. <laughs> you don't want them to get smelly. Um, you stretch, you know? If you work out and you don't stretch first, you can injure yourself. Um, so there's this, uh, before we exercise, there's this transitional period where we, we put ourselves in a, in a place where we're prepared and ready and have the proper kind of setup to exercise. So it's the same with meditation. It's important to learn how to shift gears, how to transition before doing formal meditation techniques and exercises and practices. So what does this mean? What does this look like? A few different things. The first is shifting our energy. So what I mean by that is uh, most people meditate either early in the morning or at the end of the day. So in the morning, we generally need to bring our energy up wake up, it's kind of groggy, the mind's fuzzy. Um, there are very few people who can 
wake up and be alert and clear to meditate right away, you know? So it's important to have some kind of way to shift gears from that state of sleep into a state of clarity and intentionality. So whatever that is for you, maybe it's having a cup of tea, maybe it's doing some stretching, maybe it's uh, taking a brisk walk for a few minutes, Um, maybe it's reading something, but something to bring the energy up in the morning. At the end of the day, it's often the reverse. We've been going all day long. We've been operating at uh, a pace that's probably fairly unnatural for our organism, given our culture and our society, you know? Um, I drove here from the airport, and uh, man, I thought New York was bad. (laughs) Seriously, I was, wow, very aggressive on the streets, you know? so we're just constantly in this um, in this zone of um, our nervous system being bombarded by stimuli, whether it's email or the news or driving uh, or even walking out on the street and lots of people and stimulation. So you know one of the one of the common things that will happen is we get home. And whether you meditate, say, in the evening after you get home or at night before you go to bed, um, the mind is still going, you know, going, 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 going from the day. And then we think that if we just sit down and be still, that somehow magically our mind is going to quiet down. Well, guess what? (laughs) Right? It doesn't work that way. So we need some way to shift gears to actually help the mind to come back into a state uh, of organic time, the rhythm of the body, the rhythm of the breath, rather than uh, clock time. Got to catch the bus, 8.57, make sure I don't miss it. You know, if I leave five minutes later, traffic's going to be awful. Got to get out of the house. Don't be late for the meeting. Respond to the email. All of that kind of pressure, pressure, pressure. Go, go, go. So when we're doing that all day long, the mind becomes conditioned in that way. And so we need to learn energetically how to shift gears out of that into more of like Sunday afternoon, hanging out, talking. How was, you know, how was your day yesterday? How are the kids? That, that sort of a vibe, you know, or just sitting on the front porch if it's spring or summer, taking it easy, drinking some tea that kind of a, of a space. So shifting gears, balancing the energy. <clears throat> a few ways of, of, uh, of doing this, uh, definitely movement. Uh, one of the things that's wonderful about movement is it tends to balance the energy, whatever's happening. So if your energy is low and you move, it will bring the energy up. If the energy is high and you move, it will bring the energy down and balance it out. So um, many people, myself included, find great benefit from things like Tai Chi or Qigong, um, uh, awareness and movement practices. Um, Yoga is great, but just walking. 
You know, that's that's the movement practice that comes right out of the early texts in uh, in Buddhism is walking practice. And if you read the text, the monks did a lot of walking. They walked for pindapat for alms round every day, several hours. You know, and then you read the the suttas, and you see it's not just sitting. You know, walking, 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 and. Uh, so walking, there are many, many benefits of walking meditation and walking practice, and it doesn't need to be the slow, creeping walking. You know, we can take a brisk walk. So um, finding a way of moving, stretching, that sort of thing that feels good for your body. I spent some time in Japan when I was in my early 20s practicing, and I had a Zen teacher, a um, wonderful man, uh, and we were staying at this one temple, and one of the things he, he said to us that stayed with me, he said, uh, meditation doesn't begin when you enter the meditation hall. And, you know, in Zen practice, everything is, it's not like in the insight tradition, everything is very formulaic, and you, you enter the hall with your hands in a certain position, you step into the hall with your left foot first, I mean, it's very prescribed everything you do. Um, he said, you know, meditation begins when you leave your room, you put on your shoes, as you come to the meditation hall, when you take your shoes off, the whole process leading up to getting to the, you know, and then you come into the hall, you walk in a certain way, you come to your cushion, you bow to your cushion, you turn, you bow to the center of the room, you sit, you arrange your clothes, you assume the uh, posture for zazen. So there's the whole progression. It's kind of a, this sort of ritual dance almost of getting into the meditation. But what he was saying was it doesn't start when you get to the hall and start following the routine. It starts when you leave your room. What's your mind doing? So that when you get to the hall, you're already, your mind is prepared. It's ready. It's not like you rush to the hall and then, okay, wait, slow down, stop. We're here at the at the zendo, Right? So this, this shifting gears, this transition. So working with the body is a wonderful way to do this. Um, two other ways uh, that I'll mention. Uh, one is chanting. Um, when Joseph and Jack and Sharon uh, came back from India, um, with some of the other folks who've been practicing over there with Manindraji and Ajahn Chah and uh, other uh, teachers in Asia, like Goenka, um, they made a choice to uh, strip away a lot of the cultural, what, what they uh, saw as the cultural uh, aspects of Buddhist practice in Asia. And uh, chanting was one of those. Uh, chanting is a very ancient practice. It's something that human beings have done for millennia. And there's a reason. Um, it's a very powerful practice. Um, and it, uh, it helps to concentrate the mind uh, and to um, stabilize the energy in the body because you're using the breath and sound. And it, tend, it, can, it can bring the mind and the body and the heart together in a very profound way because you're using all of the different aspects of being human. With you're chanting something, so there's some kind of words. Um, the, the vocalization is embodied. And then there's often some meaning that can resonate in the heart. 
so chanting practice can be a wonderful way to shift gears and to and to create some stability. And uh, you know, if you don't know any chants, you can go on Dharma Seed and and look for some some of the chanting that's there. If uh, if you have a connect- connection with your own uh, uh, faith of origin, if you weren't born Buddhist, as many of us most likely weren't, um, uh, then uh, you know you can uh, see if there are chants from your your faith tradition. I was I was raised Jewish, and I spent some time studying Judaism, and there's still some chants from uh, from my Jewish roots that are quite powerful that have a lot of meaning to me because it's in my blood. So there's that ancestral connection there. Uh, so that can be very powerful, finding something to chant. And it doesn't need to be complicated. It could just be namo, namo, which means uh, it's uh, a, it's a, a expression of reverence, of respect uh, to the Buddha, um, but to also just to the sacred, to that which is um, sacred about being alive. So just chanting that one word, namo, namo, just like that, you know. Chant it for a couple minutes. <coughs> Jack Jack does that chant at Spirit Rock on Monday nights. He'll just he'll just chant that Namo with everyone. It's very powerful. So one more um, uh, thing I'll offer for shift for shifting gears um, is one of my favorites. So okay, so you you do your qigong and uh, you stretch a little bit and you get your chant on and then you sit down. <laughs> okay. Um, look around the room. Take a few a few moments. Doesn't need to be long. To just let your eyes look around the room where you're sitting. One of the things we tend to do when we meditate is, you know, we get to the cushion and <laughs> close the eyes, go inside. Okay, gonna meditate. Um, our bodies like to know where they are. They really do. They really like like to know what's around them. And it's not intellectual. It's not like, I know where I am. I'm in my bedroom, you know. Your body doesn't know bedroom. That's a thought. So you've been in this room many, many times, I'm guessing, most of you, you know. But still, when we when we look with our eyes and our neck and we turn and we take the space around us in, we let our our organism take the space around us in, it calms and settles the nervous system. Our 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 eyes and our our heads and necks are wired in a way that they're connected with what's called the ventral vagus nerve for anyone who studies neurobiology. And that's connected to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest part of our nervous system, the calming part of our nervous system. And so actually orienting to the environment activates that part of our nervous system which 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 will calm and slow things down so that can be quite settling at the beginning of a period of meditation just to look around the room it's a nice little trick so these are some ways to shift gears and find your own you know find what works for you these are just ideas and suggestions it's not like you have to do this but just having some transitional period Okay, so that's one. Um, relax your expectations. 
So this is one of the ways that we get tripped up in meditation most commonly, is um, having expectations about what's supposed to happen. And then judging ourselves or judging the practice based on those expectations. One of my first meditation teachers used to say, whenever you're suffering, ask yourself the question, do I have an expectation about how things should be? And look and see. So meditation practice is a, a, a process of discovery. It's a process of looking deeply to understand something. When I was a kid, um, my father's an engineer by trade, and when I was a kid, I used to like taking things apart with him and looking at how they worked. It's an old radio, a clock, um, and then trying to put it back together again. So you can imagine if you're trying to, let's say you've got um, a wind-up clock and it's not working. And you're trying to understand well, what happened and how to fix it. You take the, the, the back of that clock off if you go in there with this expectation like, I'm going to fix that clock and I'm going to make it work and it's going to work, you know? How's that going to work out? Versus if you just take it off and you just study it and you just look at it and maybe you poke a little bit here and you turn a little bit there to try to see how the cogs are connected and what moves what. Right? You're just kind of studying it slowly to try to understand, oh, what happens when that moves in that way? And what happens if I take that piece out? Right? So there's no expectation there. There's just a curiosity. There's just an exploration. And then slowly over time, it starts to make sense how the pieces fit together. Maybe you start to see, oh, look, that piece over there looks a little different from that. I wonder if that's the part that's not, that's busted. You know, so just the spirit of of exploration, rather than expectation. So relaxing our expectations. One of the things another another teacher of mine uh, said to me. Uh, this is a senior teacher in the insight tradition. She said. over all the years of her practice, she said, I've learned to lower my expectations a lot. She's a very profound teacher. She's a very deep meditator. So it's not like she, you know, she's not applying effort and uh, not, not uh, touching into things in a very deep way. But when we come to it with expectation, it's, uh, it's a setup. It's a setup for a lot of struggle. There's another saying, um, expectation is premeditated misery. You know? So another analogy I like to use, and you know, what's it like when somebody um, has really rigid expectations of you 
in your life? How's, how does it feel to relate to that person? You know? And I'm not, I'm not talking about the kind of expectations, like the healthy expectations that, say, a teacher might have for a student, where there's that sense of encouragement and support. That's more of like a faith, right? It's more of like believing in someone and encouraging them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of rigid, narrow, like, you must be this, right? Those are more the kinds of expectations we tend to bring to our meditation practice. You better stay focused, right? You better get this right, that kind of energy. So what's it like to relate to somebody like that? Do we want to hang out with them? Is there much joy? Is there much of a sense of um, flexibility or being able to, you know, relax together? Not so much. But those are the kinds of qualities that not only are necessary for meditation, but actually make it enjoyable to be able to relax, to be flexible, to just hang out with things. So as we begin a period of meditation, to keep that in mind, you know, what are the expectations I'm bringing here about what should be happening? And what would it be like to just be curious, to try to have that sense of an open mind, to do the practice rather than to try to obtain a certain result? So the other analogy that's used in the texts is one of uh, um, agriculture. So the Buddha lived um, in uh, ancient India with an agrarian economy. Uh, so farmers, you know, cattle, uh, animals, goats, buffalo, water buffalo, and the word that's that we translate as meditation, I was talking about this on the retreat at IMS a lot, the word we translate for meditation in Pali is bhavana. And bhavana literally means cultivation, to cultivate. So what do you do when you cultivate something? You know, you work the soil, you plant seeds, you water it, you watch for the weeds, you keep, you keep the uh, uh, animals that might want to eat what you're growing out. You know, but mostly there's a lot of waiting. It just takes time. You know, you can't, you can't pull the little shoots up out of the ground and get them to grow <laughs> faster. That doesn't work very well, you know. So meditation, that's what meditation is like. It's one of just cultivating, just creating the conditions. We clear the soil, we shift gears, we plant the seeds, we put in the intentions, we do the practice, and then it's just a, it's just a process of letting it grow on its own, rather than demanding and expecting and needing and it better be kind of energy. And that's different. That's different than how we usually operate in our lives. Most of our structures in society are, are not are not set up in this kind of like, well, just wait and see and take your time, you know. It's much more like, I need it by Thursday, yeah? 
You, know, you better have it or else. So again, to, to, to put that aside, that's why the Buddha said this practice goes against the stream, against the current of worldly ways of doing things. So to relax our expectations. We hear a lot about relaxing in meditation, you know. Relax, stress reduction, relax, relax. So it can be hard to relax. It takes time to relax. Relaxing our expectations, that's something to learn how to do, though. Because even if the body can't relax, we can, we can often recognize if we, if we have that kind of contraction and to just relax the expectations to say, well, let's just, let's just do this without expecting something. And then there's a kind of a purity in the practice when we do it without expecting. So the, um, the monk who took over from Ajahn Chah at Wat Pananapang in, uh, sorry, Wat Pananachat in, uh, no, once more, Wat Papong in Thailand, uh, which is uh, the monastery where Ajahn Sumedho trained. I don't know if these names will mean something to some, some of you. Um, so the, the monk who took over for Ajahn Chah, Langpur Liam, uh, he's fond of saying, practice for the sake of practice. We practice for the sake of practice. It's a very Zen thing to say, too. Um, but there's that sense of, of doing this practice because we recognize and understand the inherent value in taking time to be present. You know, just like we wash our bodies every day, we feed our bodies every day, we give our mind time to put down the incessant activity, the incessant stimulation that's so much a part of our society, and just give it time to rest, to remember, to be present, to strengthen kindness and patience, and to, to explore itself, for the mind to recognize what it is. You know, so much of meditation is, it's about understanding what's already here. What is this mind? It's not, the goal of meditation, enlightenment, is not something we get. It's not something new. If it were, it wouldn't be enlightenment. Because if it were something new, then it would die. Then it would end. It's not something that comes into being. It's something that's already present. It's closer than anything else. But we miss it. We overshoot it. So the, so the process of meditation is one of getting more and more profoundly here. And expectation takes us away from what's here already. It's a movement away from enlightenment. So relaxing our expectations, learning to just see that in the mind and say, well, let's just dial that back. What would it be like to just show up and be here with the breath? To just show up and feel the body? So this is the second, uh, uh, second recommendation, second way of really transforming our meditation practice so that it can uh, bear the most fruit. Shifting gears, relaxing our expectations. 
So the next two are about alignment, aligning our body and aligning our mind. Meditation often seems like a very mental activity, and it is in a certain way. Um, and particularly for, for uh, um, Western culture, we tend to be very up in our head. Uh, most of, many people have jobs that involve a lot of thinking, um, unless you're working in the trades or cooking in which you're, you're in your body more, which is a great gift if you have that, uh, that capacity you know, to work in that way. But we can forget that it's actually our body that's also involved in meditation. So whether we're sitting, standing, walking, or reclining, the body is present. And the body is really our vehicle for awakening. And so an essential aspect of this path is developing a wise relationship with our body and learning to really care for and respect it. Knowing how to feed it well, knowing how to exercise it, knowing how to um, uh, listen to it, to know when it needs to move or when it needs to stretch or when it needs to sleep, when it needs to turn off the computer, you know, reading its signals and, and really learning to honor, to honor its signals. and trusting our bodies. Our bodies are so generous, so generous with us. So many of us abuse our bodies, you know, like they're a slave. Go here, do this, eat that, digest this, sit in this chair for eight hours, drive in this car for four hours, sleep less, work more, keep doing it, you know, driving, driving, driving the body. And what does it do? It keeps going, you know? It does the best it can, at least. What happens when it gets sick? It tries to get well. What happens when it gets hurt? It tries to heal, you know? It does everything it can to keep this consciousness going. So generous. How do we treat them? Do we care for them? You know, anyone who's been really sick, and I don't mean like a cold, anyone who's been really sick or had a chronic injury or something, you know, you know, that cliche, you know, you don't know what you have till you lose it. We don't know what it is to be healthy. It's like, uh, you know, it's like the air we breathe. And until you stand in a smoky room or you're stuck in traffic and you're breathing in fumes, oh God, I can't breathe, you know? 
So aligning the body, um, I use this uh, to in in two ways. In the broader way, to talk about this sense of recognizing that how we treat our body is a part of our meditation practice. How we take care of it or not every day. You know, when I was, uh, I've had a lot of health problems on and off um, since my early twenties, and. Uh, when I was going through one particularly uh, difficult health crisis, um, I was staying with uh, some uh, family of a friend of mine. I was traveling, and family there, his family happened to live there, and they had an extra room, and so I was staying there and um, just trying to get a handle on what was going on in my body. And... Um, picked up a number of books from the bookstore to try to read and to figure things out. I was meditating already, so you know I had I had some practice background. But I came, I came across a book by uh, the health guru, Andrew Weil. Is that how he pronounces his name? Andrew Weil. And uh, there's one thing in that book that stood out for me. One line where he said, um, before, you, before you can really learn to meditate, you need to learn how to eat well and how to breathe. How to take care of the body, the, just the basic functions of the body. And that really stuck with me. So aligning the body is just this broader sense of recognizing that, like, this is it. You know? This is the kit we've got to wake up in this life. We better take care of it. You know, so that's the broader sense. On the narrower sense, aligning the body means whatever posture you're using in the meditation to develop a um, a balanced relationship with the actual form, the physical form of the meditation, um, and that takes time and it takes some guidance and some instruction. So sitting is probably one of the most common forms. Uh, of meditation of the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, and reclining. Most people tend to do sitting meditation. And so that's that's what I'll focus on now. And I just want to offer a few pointers, um, many of which might be review, um, but it's it's good to remember to be reminded of them. So the first is just a rule of thumb that you want to keep your hips above your knees when you meditate. If your hips are, are, if your knees are higher than your hips, it creates um, pressure and tension in the quadriceps and tightness in the hips, which will lead to pain. And there's enough pain in meditation as it is, you know. <laughs> so we want to make sure that the body's set up in a way that uh, we're not creating more pain unnecessarily. When the hips are higher than the knees, it also creates a stable foundation. If you're sitting cross-legged, it's a triangle. If you're sitting in a chair, um, uh, you just want to make sure, again, that if you have longer legs, that your knees aren't up at an angle, that they're parallel and, even better yet, a little bit lower than the hips. The next thing is just having the, um, having the skeleton aligned so that the joints... Uh, can be stacked. So um, if you're sitting on a chair, generally you want your ankles, your knees, and your hips all on the same plane. 
so that the legs, so the knees aren't splayed out or in. And if you're sitting like on a bench or on, on, cu- on a cushion like that, again, same thing. You want the knees and the hips to, to, to try to be more, more in line with one another. This is, this is a rule of thumb. You need to find what's comfortable for your body. But as a general rule of thumb, you want to have a sense of alignment where all of the joints are stacking in alignment with one another. What we're going for in both the sitting and the standing posture is a situation in which the skeleton, right, the frame of the body is aligned so that all of the joints and bones can rest on each other. So the the human organism, it's very unusual uh, to walk upright, yeah, for, for an animal. So we evolved in this way and then we have this nice double curve in the spine uh, that's, that's designed to help keep the body upright. And when the alignment is, is proper, everything in the body, all of the, all of the uh, bones can rest and stack and, and, and be supported by gravity. And then all of the muscles and tissues can relax around that frame when it's properly aligned. The image I like to use is if you have a, like a sweatshirt on a hanger. So the hanger is your skeleton and the sweatshirt is the rest of the, the tissues and muscles and viscera. They just can just relax and rest on the structure. So starting with the stable base, aligning the ankles, knees, and hips. And then the pelvis is really important, aligning the pelvis. So let's just do a little um, uh, experiment or just a little movement. So the pelvis can move. um, You can tilt the pelvis forward or back. So just try that. So tilting the pelvis forward, it's a little bit like sticking your butt out or uh, arching your back. Feel that. And then tilting it the other way so that the small of your back rounds and your tailbone tucks under. You feel that? So just play with that, just that on that one plane, arching the back and then curving the low back. So the pelvis is tilting one way and the other way. So what we're doing in meditation and sitting meditation is we're finding the balance point between those until you find that center where you, you feel the connection with the ground below you on the sit bones, these, these two bones at the bottom of the pelvis. The other plane is side to side. So practice just, so not so much this way but actually like you're in here, lifting up one hip or lifting up the other hip. Can you feel that? So it's like your pelvis goes goes like this, one end goes up and the other goes down, and then the other way. So, and again, we're looking for that balanced place in the middle where both sides are evenly balanced. 
So this is very important in sitting, the beginning of a period of meditation, just feeling into the pelvis, because everything, everything up here is resting on that. If you don't have a solid foundation, you're going to be pretty uncomfortable. So aligning the pelvis. And then from there, stacking up the spine, allowing the spine to be upright, opening the front of the chest, letting the elbows be heavy, so the shoulders, so the distance between the the earlobes and the shoulders gets longer, feeling the elbows be heavy. And then imagining that there were a string from the top of the head all the way down to the pelvis, and like somebody gently pulled that string up a little bit. So the whole spine and all the vertebra could lengthen some. Sometimes it's helpful to think of the chin dropping just a half a degree, and that opens up the back of the neck, the base of the skull. So we're looking for this sense of alignment in the body. When the body is still, it helps the mind to become still. When the body is comfortable, it helps the mind to become comfortable. This doesn't mean you're not going to have pain in your meditation. That's inevitable. But we're looking for an alignment that supports a sense of stillness. And if you're you're sitting cross-legged and your knees aren't on the ground, what you would want to do is either raise your, your hips up higher or get, get a couple of cushions underneath your knees so that uh, you don't put the stress on the thighs. So aligning the body. So shifting gears, relaxing expectations, taking care of the body, aligning the body in your actual formal meditation practice. The next is aligning the mind. What does this mean, aligning the mind? So going back to that analogy I used in the beginning of how you're holding a tool, right? Brushing our teeth is uh, very important if you don't want to have pain in your mouth. <laughs> yeah? We don't, if we don't have oral hygiene, eventually there's going to be a problem. But if you brush your teeth too hard, you can actually create problems. Right? You can wear away your gums. You can actually wear away the enamel on your teeth. Right? So you have to know <laughs> how to hold, actually how to hold and use a toothbrush properly. You know? So when you hold your toothbrush, how hard are you gripping it? You know, how much are you going to town on your teeth? So with our meditation technique, it's important to know how are we holding it. And that's the alignment of the mind. And the Buddha was very specific about this. He said there are three uh, key orientations to life and to meditation practice that are important. And this is the, this is the factor of right intention in the Eightfold Path. It's, it's indicating how we align our mind, how we align our intention towards whatever we're doing, meditating, cooking, working, relating with one another. And so these, these three, the first is kindness. 
non-ill will, the absence of ill will. How much, how much ill will is there present when you meditate towards yourself? Sometimes. So aligning the mind means remembering, oh, <laughs> meditation's about being kind to myself. <laughs> Non-ill will towards oneself. The next is related, non-harming, not being cruel to myself. otherwise known as compassion. This is the second inner orientation of the mind to meditation, compassion. And the last is letting go. Renunciation, simplicity. What I was talking about before, not getting something, but the opposite movement, releasing. This is very important to keep in mind with meditation that the proper orientation is letting go. One of my teacher, one of my monastic teachers likes to say, non-desire, non-becoming, letting go. So that's the orientation to meditation, to using meditation techniques properly. Kindness, compassion, and letting go. So at the beginning of a period of meditation, we shift gears, we put down expectations, we check our body, am I sitting properly? Okay, how am I approaching this thing? Is there, is there some of that energy of judging myself, of ill will, of, of forcing myself, or of trying to get something? I need to make myself into a better person. I need to make my mind more concentrated. That action of getting something is going in the wrong direction. What would it be like to have an orientation of sim simplification, putting things down, rather than picking things up? So this is aligning the mind. You still with me? I've been talking for a while. All right. Last one. Appreciate awareness. This is where meditation starts to get enjoyable. When we can learn to appreciate awareness rather than to judge delusion. To appreciate awareness. The Buddha said... A moment of mindfulness is better than 100 years without being mindful. One moment of mindfulness. So if one moment of mindfulness is better than living 100 years, how many moments of mindfulness do you have in a sitting? At least two or three. Right? So there's two or three hundred years right there. You're good. <laughs> We don't think that way, right? We have this expectation, and then we judge ourselves against it. We can't control when we lose awareness. 
When we lose it, it's gone. That's not up to us. The most important moment of meditation is what happens when it comes back. Awareness returns eventually, it always does. Then what happens? Do we get out the stick? Or do we welcome it home? If you have a cat, and every time that cat comes home, you, you yell at it, and you spray water at it, and you berate it. You say, how many times have I told you you're supposed to stay here? Stop running away. Don't go away. Stay here. How long is that cat going to stick around? After a while, you think it's going to want to come home? Why do you think your awareness should be any different? If every time you remember to be aware, you beat the heck out of yourself for forgetting, who wants to come back? But if every time we remember to be aware, there's that sense of, all right, great, we're back. So the return of mindfulness is a good thing. When mindfulness returns, that's cause for celebration. Do you see that? It means the practice is working when we remember. So it, it's important to actually understand that and to recognize when, when mindfulness returns, uh, to appreciate it. And then we start to be able to recognize awareness and to have a taste for it, to really, really uh, enjoy being aware. And then it starts to grow naturally on its own. It creates a positive feedback loop. And then our practice begins to gather its own momentum. So these are the five recommendations I have for uh, getting the most out of your meditation practice. I hope it's useful for you.